Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Kwadra Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Okay, guys, welcome. This is uh, an extremely unique initiative by the Resource Optimization Network and our podcast, Solving Healthcare, getting some of the great critical care minds to discuss about the prognosis of our vented ICU patients. And this has really been initiated because of uh, the GEM article that came out April 22nd, looking at uh, overall prognosis of COVID patients. But specifically, there was a high mortality rate associated with patients that were mechanically ventilated or put on ventilators. And so we wanted to see globally amongst our colleagues, is this what we're seeing? Are we seeing mortality rates greater than 80%? And this got in the press and there was a real sense, at least for me, of anxiety that this was going to be, uh, this was going to affect care um, with, with such a, with a, such an, you know, highly respected journal producing this content. So I really want to uh, thank our guests for joining us. Joining us, I'm going to start with, we got Dr. Haley Gershengorn, uh, Associate Professor and Interim Vice Chief of Pulmonary and Critical uh, Care at University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, and also a Harvard graduate. This might be the first time I'm talking to a Harvard Medical School graduate. What's up? Thanks for coming. My man, Thank you for the invitation. 100%. My man and Resource Optimization Network member, uh, Bram Roshwork, Assistant Professor, uh, McMaster's uh, uh, Division of Critical Care, and Site Chief, if I'm not mistaken, of uh, Jurovinsky's ICU, and Monster Researcher. We were just looking at his numbers. They're ridiculous. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. 100%. Anand Dubé, my man. He, we went to med school together, and he is the head of medicine over at Markham Stovall Hospital, intensivist, also media uh, like mogul, and showing up on the national and, and stuff. Thanks for joining us, Anand. Uh, thanks for having me, buddy. Absolutely. Peter Brindley, podcast guest times. Like, it'll end up being times two or three by the end of the year, but uh, professor of critical care, anesthesia at the University of Alberta, nature enthusiast. Uh, I just love, I just love, I'm a big fan. I, I got a man crush on Pete, so thank you for joining us. Um, N- nature enthusiast rather than naturalist enthusiast, there is a difference. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Um, my boss and super, uh, I'm going to say like um, really been a great leader during this time, actually, Dr. Dave Nelopovitz, head of ICU, been uh, leading the charge within our region for management of, uh, of uh, COVID um, and um, also an anesthesiologist. 
Thanks for joining, Dave. And absolutely. And I'm going to say guest of honor, Tommaso, Dr. Tommaso Mori. He's the uh, internist and researcher at the University of Milan. And, um, you know, especially knowing the kind of volume that was seen in your country and you taking the time, I think we could learn a lot from you. So I really appreciate you um, taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. 100%. So where to start? Um, I got kids crying in the background. I apologize. There's three kids here and it's like, oh my God. Um, I'm go- we're going to start with uh, Tommaso. What, I, maybe even just from the beginning, what it's been like taking care of uh, COVID patients, what, you've, what you saw at the beginning and what the state of the affairs are now and how are your patients doing? Okay, thank you. Um, in Milan, the, um, let's say, epidemic and the surge of patients into the ICU became uh, huge and uh, not under control, <laughs> outside of our control at the beginning of March, end of February, beginning of March. And uh, in two or three weeks, we filled all the ICU beds we had in our region, Lombardy, Milan, and the surrounding area. And we had to open new ICU beds at the pace that was like uh, from day to night, there was a one new ICU in my hospital. For example, my hospital used to have two ICU and ended up having five ICU with uh, around uh, 60 to 70 patients intubated in the ICU, COVID patients at the same time. So by the end of March, we had like 60, 70 COVID patients coming from all over the region, very severe. No bed in the ICU was with a non-invasive or non-intubated patient. All the patients were intubated. In the beginning, we, we are an ECMO center. We decided that it was too much to, to start uh, on ECMO these patients, and we didn't do much in the beginning. In the second half, let's say, after the end of March, we started doing also some ECMO, but we did very few because the logistics and the, the amount of patients was incredible. It was not, an, we could not handle that. The, the other thing that is relevant, I think, is that uh, a lot of doctors who came in the ICU to treat this patient were not intensivists, were not, uh, uh, not, maybe they were trained as intensivists, but never practiced, uh, intensive, practiced the intensive care unit before because the, 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 the patient were too many. So this was the, the situation by the end of March. 60, 70 patients looked after by I would say a third of the doctors that were intensivists and two thirds of the doctors that came from either the operating room or the medical wards and a very severe patient. And in the beginning, um, this was a RDS. So we treated them as severe RDS patients, elevated PEEP, proning, but uh, there were, I, I, I perfectly remember, two, three, four cases, Matthew, dying without having, without having 
every night every had understood anything of what was going on with this patient. They had very high diadenos. They had uh, pulmonary thrombosis. They had very high dead space, very low PO2, and they died suddenly by cardiovascular collapse. I would say very young patients. This was uh, in the beginning. I, I think that uh, with time. Uh, we are a research center. We did a lot of measures in this patient. We published a paper in critical care medicine. And uh, with time, we kind of understood a little better the physiology of this patient. And, uh, and uh, we tended to use uh, less PEEP and uh, proning maybe at a later stage. We used the uh, NO, and NO afterward. And I, I think that the, those uh, sudden deaths didn't happen in the second half of, uh, of the crisis, let's say after uh, April. But uh, uh, I, I would say that uh, you started with the prognosis. I think that uh, we could, we discussed with my colleagues this and we can divide roughly schematically patients, I think in three, three outcomes in the ICU. There were those that, uh, in a few days improved and could be wind. There were those that didn't improve and had the sudden death in shock cardiovascular collapse. And, there, uh, and the third group uh, is uh, very severe that uh, ended up having prolonged winning. And we still have those patients now in the unit. We have a patient that is there since two months. And I think that in a week will be weaned from the ventilator. So the, those with the prolonged weaning had a lot of pneumothorax, very low compliance, and it's taking a lot of physiotherapy and, uh, and uh, support to take care of this. And, and they have like 30, 40, 50 days of on mechanical ventilation, but they are recovering. It's not that they are... so. I think that these, uh, these are the groups. I, the mortality, we don't know yet how much it is. There was the first publication in JAMA from our group, uh, and their mortality was 25%, but was very early days. Uh, now, the mortality, my feeling is that it doesn't, it's no more than 30, 40%. So it's similar to severe, yes. Uh, the, but the days on ventilation are much longer much longer than uh, standard ARDS, I would say. And uh, the, the last thing I would say is that uh, these three groups, the sudden death, the prolonged winning, and the easy ones, were, uh, in my opinion, impossible to differentiate on day one. They were all uh, as severe between them. Very low PF ratio, very high PCO2, there is some correlation maybe with the days from starting of the symptoms, but not, not very strong in our experience. So this is our experience. Wow. <laughs> no, thank you so much for that uh, lovely summary. And I, I got to tell you too, like we, we learned a lot from your guys' experience. Like I think our success rates were completely related to knowing that, you know, seeing what you guys saw and being able to articulate, hey, yeah, there's more clot burden. Um, there's a more renal dysfunction. There's maybe different ways we should be approaching ventilation. Um, I think was, was I, in my opinion, vital to the success. Um, 
So Haley, maybe you could talk about what uh, the experience was uh, at your site and, uh, and comment on prognosis as well. Sure, sure. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, we were very fortunate. Um, many of them relate to the fact that places like Milan and all of Italy, and then certainly within the US, New York, um, were sharing their information with us. Um, and so while we did see an uptick in cases, it obviously looked nothing like um, what was just being described. Um, so I worked at two hospitals uh, in downtown Miami. Um, one of which uh, is a more uh, smaller, uh, was typically a private hospital, although it was converted into an academic site, and the other of which is the large county hospital for the city. Um, we normally cover both um, hospitals in the ICUs, but we've divided our faculty for this, so I worked primarily actually in the smaller hospital, and so I can probably speak a little bit more in detail about that, although I can try to mention the other one as well. Um, so again, our, our uh, peak for what it's worth was certainly much lower than what was just being described and certainly much lower than other areas in the U.S., but occurred probably around three weeks ago. Um, and our census in the ICU um, on the medical, so, so um, in a very typical U.S. Uh, uh, our ICUs and tertiary care centers are separated, right? Medical, surgical, um, they're all somewhat different. So the medical ICU census, which is where these patients largely uh, found themselves, really went up probably twofold at most. Um, so what our bigger hospital normally covers about 26 to 30 of these patients and probably had closer to 45 to 50 uh, COVID patients. Um, not all of whom were intubated, but many of whom were. Um, in the smaller hospital, we usually have about 10 or 15 medical ICU patients and at our max had about 19 or so um, COVID ICU patients. Um, but again, I think we really did learn from a lot of what was just being described. So we were able to upscale quite quickly. We created a, a separate unit in a number of those places, as you were just describing very quickly, um, but we were able to do it with a lot of lead time, I think because of the experiences around the world. Um, I think we didn't see as much as what was just being described of this sort of low uh, or normal or higher lung compliance ARDS, I'm sorry, or uh, acute injury. I wonder if that's in part because since we were a little bit delayed and we were hearing from other places that there were um, maybe not as much of a need for the sort of early intubation strategy that, that maybe we were really only intubating folks as they became kind of more traditional ARDS. I'm not certain. Um, I will say most of the folks that I took care of had, had fairly compromised lung compliance and, and seemed to respond very well. Um, from an oxygenation perspective to higher PEEP and proning strategy, similar to what you might see in typical ARDS. We're certainly seeing uh, a decent number of the clots that were just being described. I also wonder if we're looking more than we do for other, our other ARDS patients because of what people have been describing. Um, and I think that overall, you know, our, our outcomes obviously are still uh, uh, up in the air, but I similarly think that we're gonna end up seeing very similar to typical severe ARDS outcomes. Um, the most recent numbers that I've seen, at least at one of our, our institution, about two thirds of our patients have a hospital outcome at this point. Um, and about half of those have died and about half of them um, have survived to discharge. So that kind of, if you, if you think about that, that's sort of a third, a third, a third. And, and, and so I can imagine the overall mortality ultimately being in sort of the 30, 40% range um, as well. Wow, uh, thanks for that, Haley. Um, maybe uh, Peter Brinley. The one and only. We, you're the only one rest, representing the pra Prairie Provinces. 
my alma mater. Um, you know, we were hearing a lot about Edmonton being quiet in terms of IC, um, in terms of COVID numbers, but certainly Calgary, we were hearing the numbers were up. What did you get? A, what was the sense uh, that you saw uh, locally? You muted, my friend. I'm terribly sorry about that, uh, pregnant pause. Uh, I'm going to have very little to add to what your two experts just talked about. We have had a relative state of NOVID rather than COVID for the last couple of weeks. We haven't had a, an ICU admission for COVID to, to the two places I work in for over three weeks now and and a handful of cases before that. So the numbers that have been that have been offered by your Italian and New York experts are, are similar to ours that it's looking like once they get ARDS and I don't know if we're going to get into a discussion of what seem to be the various subtypes and or um, time presentations of the disease it doesn't seem to be massively different than ARDS what it is is a heck of a long time on the ventilator so it's worth a good chat about whether the early approach which was tube everybody sedate everybody paralyze everybody versus what seems to have been the later approaches try to keep them off ventilators maintain them on dreaded technologies that might just aerosolize uh, that might cause aerosolized generalizing particles or maybe the greatest thing because you keep them off injurious ventilators. That That's the position we're in. We're, because we haven't had a big first phase, we're almost certain we're going to have a big second phase. So we're eager to get it right when it comes around. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I hear you. Um, so maybe Dubé... You, 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 you were one of the, I think in Toronto, you had the highest volume of COVID patients initially over at Markham Stovall. And um, when we talked offline, hearing about the prognostic, your, your, um, your results in terms of prognosis, I was actually qu quite surprised. Um, so I'm wondering if you could uh, uh, articulate some of that. Sure. Um, so, uh, like Haley said, we had the benefit of seeing what happened in other places. So we did have a long time, I mean, short, but, but relatively long compared to other places, time to prepare. Um, so I feel like we were, we were lucky that way that we, uh, that we were able to, to manage a, a much higher burden of patients than we, when we, that, that we normally would have, which, which may have affected the prognosis in some cases because I think you know when you're under stress obviously it's much more difficult to take care of some of these patients so we're we're in a we're in a medium-sized hospital about 45 minutes outside of Toronto uh, that normally has 15 ICU beds um, but a, th a 300 uh, to 400 bed hospital so uh, by uh, for whatever reason community spread happened sort of uh, first in our region so we did uh, have one of the earlier waves in the end of March um, and um, just to get straight to the point, I mean, by, by the end of, end of April, uh, April 30th, we had uh, just, uh, just around 30 cases that had come to our ICU. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, these patients have fit the criteria, fit sort of the description of most COVID patients. But for some reason, our patients have done fairly well. And I have really no explanation for that. Um, we have uh, 
only had a small percentage uh, die so far. So our mortality rate is around 10 right now. Um, and um, there are still some to be determined, but it's not, it's not going to hit the 25 to 30% range, it seems. Um, of those 30 patients, um, 18 patients are already home, actually. So, uh, and our, uh, if you look at our, our, our um, uh, you know, PF ratio medium, uh, median, sorry, uh, it's around 100 for the worst PF ratio during their stay. Uh, these, so they, they were sick. And we, in, the, in the beginning, I feel like after looking over all of these cases, because we're doing a case review, uh, it's, it seems if you look at the data that we were intubating them early, because if you look at their SATs, their, their FIO2 and stuff before intubation, you know, you see someone on six liters who's satting 100% with a respirator of 24, you know, you look at the, the chart, you know, why are you intubating that person? But we just started to have the experience that as we tried to delay, that person would almost inevitably, inevitably be intubated within a day. Um, so we started intubating earlier. And then we, we moved to what uh, Dr. Brindley was talking about. Like, why don't we try high flow nasal cannula for a couple of days and see if we can avoid ventilation. And, and um, out of those 28 patients, 26 of them ended up being intubated. And the, the, the patients that we tried to maintain on, uh, on high, high flow nasal cannula, only two of them were successfully able to uh, get through their ICU stay without requiring intubation. And we tried several uh, in, in terms of trying to avoid intubation. Um, I would agree with Haley. They fit normal ARDS patterns for the most, uh, most uh, part. A lot of these patients were on very high peak, very high peak pressures. We didn't see a lot of the high compliance uh, patients. Um, and um, the only other thing I would, I, I would say that we noticed that I haven't seen a lot of is that because these are mostly healthy patients for the most part. We, we, were, we, were, we were really bringing mostly healthy patients to our IC with very few comorbidities. Our median SOFA score was only five. Um, uh, um, uh, it seems that when they were coming off the ventilator, they were recovering very quickly from a physical point of view, a lot faster than I would normally see. And that may just be because a lot of them were unusually healthy after getting to the ICU, but that's the other thing that we noticed. They were rehabbing very quickly and getting home. So, you know, it's a different, it's a different experience than, than a lot of places. Um, we're still trying to work out exactly why. I don't know if we ever necessarily will, um, but I would say that over the past few weeks, our patients do seem to be sicker. They're not recovering the same way that the, the original wave seemed to be. They're, they're staying on the ventilator longer. We've had more reintubations, more requirement to transfer uh, to, uh, to ECMO centers. So I, I don't know that there's necessarily something changing or if it's just a coincidence because these are small numbers of 30 to 40 patients. But those are the observations I'd say that were the most pertinent to me. Wow. Uh, thanks for that, Arnd. Um, maybe for Dave and Bram, I'll let you take turns here. What, actually, Dave, before... Um, Ram pipes in. You you got a like a a lens from a higher point of view in terms of how we're doing regionally, and maybe just getting to the point. Does this seem to be consistent with the numbers that we're saying? And then, Ram, I, I was gonna put you on the spot in terms of like why do you think our numbers are are like in terms of prognosis are better compared to you know what was quoted in New York, like um, and and to other sites. Um, so yeah, Dave, maybe uh, um, let us know what you think. 
I don't know if it's a higher point of view or is a, a larger point of view. Uh, um, very similar to what was presented by by the the other um, series of, of speakers. Roughly for us, um, having a little more specifics, about two thirds of our patients were vented. So I think we were much more aggressive at not intubating, um, and so we learned from from the other sites. And so, um, rightly or wrongly, that that is kind of what we saw in our region in terms of mortality, um, which is certainly the focus of the the talk here today. We had a 30% mortality um, in our region, which is very similar to roughly what the province is is reporting for vented patients. Um, overall mortality is closer to about 25%. And a lot of the patients um, in that type of grouping that, that ended up dying who weren't intubated, uh, we, we certainly had um, uh, some octogenarians, if I'm using the right, people in their 80s and 90s, which um, I'm not sure would have gotten into some of the ICUs uh, that are overwhelmed. Um, certainly, the the talk of the triage and all the concerns surrounding that. But uh, with our numbers not being as outlandish as what other centers were experiencing, certainly uh, we did our best for for some of those uh, that patient population group. Um, we're actually doing pretty good, and that 70% discharge rate is is almost what we're at for our region. Um, and 70% discharge rate alive, um, just to be clear on that. So for the most part, I think uh, the numbers are, are very similar in, in, in Ontario um, and to what we heard. In terms of anticoagulation, I think we were very aggressive with that. And it would be interesting to, to hear what others think, if that was a good thing or a bad thing, and whether or not that helped out. Um, dialysis rates we're roughly about 20%. So, so those are some of the numbers. Um, you know, I do believe we were more aggressive, like I said, in anticoagulating and maybe not intubating everyone. Um, and so we do a deeper dive on, on how sick um, everyone was. Uh, it would be interesting if we can compare, are we comparing the same patient populations or are they different? And just one last point is, we never saw any of that cardiovascular collapse that, that's been described, and certainly we heard out of Seattle. So I'd uh, yeah. be curious to know what other centers, if they saw that or not, but we most certainly didn't. And I'm wondering if that's, to be honest, we didn't use a lot of hydroxychloroquine and, and some of the other uh, medications and whether or not that factors in at some point, and that will take a deeper dive. And, and uh, I'll leave that question to be answered by Bram. Um, we'll leave all the hard questions for him. Um, but whether or not that, that it's the treatment that may be responsible for some of those uh, unusual situations as opposed to COVID itself. Yeah, sorry, Bram, we're, uh, we're loading you up with a, with a big... Yeah, no, no worries. Thanks. Uh, it's been great. Uh, uh, great to listen even to this point, uh, hearing about everyone's um, different experiences. And I do think that there's a bunch of different explanations for the variability in prognosis that we're seeing. And I think it's both, you know, methodologic reasons, but also patient characteristics and, and others. You know, uh, some of those early reports that came out, a, a large proportion, as Haley mentioned, of patients were still 
requiring uh, intensive care resources. And, you know, some of the reports, especially the ones uh, from New York, were only commenting on those that had an outcome at the time. And um, we've seen how long those that are uh, sick with COVID ARDS persist in hospital requiring mechanical ventilation over a prolonged period of time. And the ones that survive are going to need that time to overcome their illness. And the ones that you immediately have endpoints in terms of survived or, or lived, uh, it, it's not a surprise that a lot that more of those um, died and the, perhaps the numbers were artificially inflated. So I think that there's methodol methodologic differences, but then also, uh, as mentioned, patient differences. Um, uh, definitely elderly populations perhaps have increased risk of mortality and Tommaso perhaps can comment more, but from what I've heard is that that region of Italy might have a higher proportion of elderly patients um, uh, and that might have contributed. Um, we've seen that uh, those risk factors for poor prognosis from what I've seen, things like being overweight, hypertension, diabetes, and not a comment on the state of the United States, but I think that the prevalence of some of these conditions is higher might also have impacted in terms of prognosis and even access to health care, you know, is that the United States uh, does provide excellent health care to uh, certain parts of the population. And then I'd argue not having a universal health care, uh, that there's uh, proportions of the population that don't have as good access to health care. And that might also influence uh, outcomes in uh, the United States as compared to other locations or differences between um, locations as well. So uh, and then finally, uh, as Dave alluded to, is when it comes to experimental therapies, my sense is, is that a lot more experimental therapies were used in different regions, or there was at least variability in these things. And as we know with experimental therapies, there's an equal opportunity for benefit as there is for harm until we have evidence suggesting that these should be used. And I had heard reports of people with ARDS from COVID in the United States getting six or seven treatments on hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, azithromycin, antivirals, convalescent plasma steroids and again when you're giving eight or nine of those things I think there's equal likelihood that you're perhaps contributing uh, to harm um, as well and I, I just wanted to end on one thing I had an uh, interesting anecdote I think of you know the harms of perhaps misinformation around prognosis and it was very prevalent that those that uh, ended up on the mechanical uh, mechanically ventilated with COVID you know the prognosis was awful uh, there's there's no sense in even going on when I took over service a few weeks ago in our COVID unit, we had a, a young gentleman, a 50-year-old guy, uh, previously healthy, uh, who was in our ICU with COVID. He was on high-flow nasal cannula and escalating doses, escalating doses. And the handover I got was that he was A&D. When they talked to him, he did not want to be intubated. When they talked to him and said, you know, you're sort of heading that way, he said, well, listen, I heard from Donald Trump that as soon as you're intubated for COVID, that's it. It's a death sentence. You're going to die. That's what I read in the media. And he was refusing to be intubated. And so the first thing I did when I got handover was went to him and said, listen, like, this is, this is misinformation. You're a 50-year-old guy. You're previously healthy. I can't guarantee you anything. But odds are, if you get intubated, we're going to get you through this. Odds are. And, and had to convince him to, to go ahead for intubation. A couple hours later, he was intubated. And I, he ended up, uh, this was seven weeks ago, he ended up tracheostomy uh, and from what I heard was just wean from the ventilator has just come off, hopefully for good, who knows, but uh, I do think that there's harm with uh, diffusion of this information that is perhaps incorrect and, you know, maybe as epidemiologists we understand that, but lay people, press, uh, 
leaders of uh, countries don't understand the limitations of the data and disseminate this this false information, which can have monumental harms. I think. Oh, I mean, essentially, Bram, this is why we're doing this, man. Like it's it's like it's. I mean, there's been a lot of misinformation in general, and and the narratives that you're seeing in the media is, you know obviously very negative and could be misleading but this was a a monster one and like i this is the first time i heard of a, a patient saying no be, uh, because of what's out in the media but uh but, you know think about how dangerous that is and like that's like i mean this is thousands of cases globally and um and you're seeing this firsthand so um this is exactly why we're doing this now um peter you look like you wanted to say some Unless uh, I misread you. No, no, no. I think we should get into the experimental therapies discussion. Uh, Bram, I would just caution your enthusiasm. Your patient is still going to vote for Trump uh, in 2020 <laughs> when he gets better. That's all. Okay. Um, Dube, you were going to th- yeah. throw something? I just wanted to say, um, so, so exactly what Bram said, basically. Like, it, it is... It is it has really, really, I would say, clouded and or influenced all, of, I would say all, but most of our discussions about goals of care in a good way and wow. a bad way. Obviously, the bad way in where, Fram, I had a patient exactly like this, a patient who did not want to go on the ventilator, fairly healthy. I remember it, he had gout and hypertension. And he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm one of those patients. I'm very sick. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to survive. And, um, and we had to, like, it's not often that we're convincing people to be intubated. It's such an unusual state, but there were people like that for sure. But it also uh, influenced the, the goals of care discussion, discussions in patients who we actually don't feel should be intubated. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot easier, which, you know, I think for a physician who is having that discussion properly and for the right reasons is, is good. Um, uh, but you know, there are, you know, there are potentially, uh, some physicians who don't have necessarily the same knowledge of what happens at the ICU and prognosis who, uh, you know, could take that information too far and actually convince, you know, a patient to be, yeah, you're right. You know, COVID's really bad. Like you really shouldn't go that way. And it might actually be the wrong decision for some patients directed by, by, you know, a physician who is, who's also being influenced by the same types of, of data that are coming out. So it's good and bad. Yeah, I mean, and and Bram's point too is like, at, if you look at looking at it with an epidemiological lens, yes, you can see poke holes in the JAMA. But I I know some pretty sound clinicians, intensivists, that were citing this as reasons why not to intubate people. You know what I'm saying? I'd add a couple of points. There's there's a fascinating phenomenon in research where if you remove the first couple of patients from enrollment in some studies, you'll have a vastly different uh, result. In other words, it's a bit like simulation. You have to get used to doing something before you can do something properly. And so that is the purpose of having conversations like this, so that those of us that haven't seen huge swaths of COVID can learn from those that have. Um, It's going to be a little bit like that with the public and a a little bit like that with goals of care conversations. You know, ultimately, the difference between a doctor and some other healthcare workers is we are paid very well to deal with cognitive dissonance, to deal with the fact that things aren't entirely black and aren't entirely white. And the public, poor things, have gone through a huge 
exercise in sort of cognitive dissonance where some people have said in the past, I want everything, I want everything, please don't even voice any limitations versus this new one of don't do anything, don't do anything. And I think we've seen this transition in many, many diseases. Um, I've spoken to some Brits because they had such seemingly high case mortality rates and all sorts of different hypotheses were offered. And one of them actually was, and, and please take this in context and just understand as much as anything, it's for provocation. They've said, well, actually, we were finally having the discussions that we should have had 10 years ago and our case mortality rates weren't extraordinarily high. They were actually probably what they should have been coming into the ICU. So I'm, I'm with Anan on on. 99.9% .9 of, of things that, that we shouldn't be uh, rushing towards do everything, do nothing. But it's actually no different than every disease that we've ever faced. This is just the awkward, excessive cognitive dissonance of getting used to a new disease. Mm -hmm. No, great point. Uh, I, I, want, uh, I, I want to share and know what is your... Uh, experience and impression in terms of the drugs, medication that we used, because um, in the beginning, I mean, uh, with having the, all these patients arriving and we, we treated them, we had an average treatment for everybody, but with days, with time, we tried to uh, recognize, uh, uh, for example, uh, we gave more anti-inflammatory drugs like uh, steroids, uh, be after diagnosing hyperinflammation or we gave anticoagulation after after we had elevated the didymers and uh, i think this worked out uh, well because in the end after a month or so each patient had a slightly different uh, Therapy, let's say, no, not not uh, all average. We we try to recognize what phase of the of the syndrome the patient was in. W what we gave to everybody is hydroxychloroquine. Yes, we did. Everybody was put on that, and uh, we didn't have much side effects from what I can see. We didn't use antivirals because we don't. Uh, we didn't have uh, remdesivir. We used the caletral opinavir, in the beginning, just in the first week, I would say, and then quitted that. So this is my impression from the drugs point of view. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks. Thanks for that. Actually, sorry, Haley, you look like you, you got something. So if, it's, if it's all right, I, I just wanted to, to say as well, in line with the same comments, I think that we saw sort of an evolution in in how we were treating people. And I feel like in a weird way, and I'm not suggesting this is what, what you were describing, a lot of it was very reactionary. So mm -hmm. everybody got a whole bunch of stuff up front. And, I, and you know, we had a protocol and, and it was very clearly laid out and it was very clearly not followed and, and everybody got a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and then I think at least those of us in the ICU sort of said, well, we're seeing a lot of folks who are having potential complications from this stuff that may have been just related to the disease, right? But we were seeing a lot of, I, I can personally attest to a number of polymicrobial pneumonias, polymicrobial bacteremias, you know, and I'm not saying we never see that in other patients, but, but really very many more um, percentage-wise. And so I think a lot of us sort of said, oh gosh, let's, these anti-inflammatories are not a good idea, and then we stopped doing them. And so I, 
to me, it was as you guys were just describing with these goals of care conversations, really casting a light and magnifying something that I think we do all the time, which is we're evidence-based practitioners in theory, but a lot of what we do is very reactionary to what we see around us. And I think now we've sort of settled into a place where we're doing a little more of what you're describing. We're certainly tailoring therapy a, a bit. I think all of us have very different opinions within our group of, of how we should tailor therapy, but I think each of us is doing a little more of that. Um, but I think all of us have taken a step back and said, let's really not use this stuff and let's try to enroll them in studies if they're willing to participate, but let's try to gain some information because I think that we just sort of, sort of saw that, that rapid turnaround of, oh my gosh, give them everything we don't know what to do to, oh my gosh, maybe we're causing harm, give them nothing, you know, and, and, and that sort of uh, trajectory. Mm -hmm. I, I could read Dave's mind too, because uh, we're, we're, we're cut from the same cloth in terms of less is always more. Um, but you do, you did get that sense. Like I, I was there for the first case that came in through the general and I, I, I feel like they got everything like, you know, and, um, and it was very reactionary. And I mean, a lot of it was fear-based. We didn't want to screw this up. Um, but man, it was, as you mentioned, Haley, like, uh, like through the kitchen sink. I, I think uh, a lot of our rapid intubation was from being exposed. But I, Haley, can I ask you for your expertise? You, you mentioned secondary bacterial infections. And, you know, the 1918 flu, that was the belief that people died of strep and staph, even though we couldn't test for it. Uh, what's been your practice with empiric antibiotics? Because as you point out, our stewardship of antivirals has been a bit dodgy. What about our stewardship of antibacterials? So I, I will preface this by saying, so I think it's a great question. I'll preface this by saying that I don't think we have a consistent answer in our institution, let alone both our institutions. Um, I think almost all of us are still doing antibiotics for a couple of days when they present. Um, and you know, we're, we're fortunate, I think, compared to our general medicine colleagues, right, in that we have a pretty good access to their respiratory secretion. So we, we get a pretty good sample pretty early on. And I think most of us have removed the antibiotics within a day or two if everything doesn't grow. I think we're getting into some more trouble, and, and I'm really struggling with this because I consider myself similar, uh, Dave, to what you're describing as kind of like a less is more kind of person. Um, we are seeing a lot of recommendations to sort of throw antibiotics back at them at the slightest thing. Um, you know, the fever five days later, the new white count, all this sort of stuff. And, and I think it's in part because of the number of additional infections we saw. We have plenty of folks who received a lot of those anti-inflammatory uh, cocktails and went home and did fine, right? But then I, I personally can think of three or four who've had recurrent bacteremias and pneumonias with multiple bugs, including fungus, which, you know, just your normal person who comes in with ARDS and septic shock, I just don't see we feel we see that much of. And so I think we're being pushed, ourselves. we're pushing ourselves um, to maybe treat first and ask questions later. And I, I don't love that approach. Um, so yeah, I would, say, I would say, I think we're using antibiotics a little more freely than we normally would, antibacterials. And I don't, similar to what I was saying about the other stuff, I'm not sure if that's good or bad, um, honestly. Actually, I'm really curious to hear from maybe actually anybody in the panel. I, 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 don't, I don't know if I, we saw a lot of bacteremia. Like, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking of my cases personally. Um, maybe Dave, you, um, 
did you did yeah, you have uh, something to well what would you, what would you see is the high fevers um and i think it was the fear that we're missing something else that that they would seem to deeper vest and then you would get this spike of fever and you're like oh i guess we have a secondary infection and we actually didn't get the bacteremias that positive it was like we would do a ton of extra cultures we would add the antimicrobials back in and then be disappointed that nothing grew out um and i guess we then would or at least personally i can't speak for everyone but often we would stop it and then next thing you know a couple of days later another fever and you're like oh did i miss it i can recall a patient changing all central lines multiple times um in the, in the same individual just worried that i'm missing something and maybe this is a reflection of the COVID itself causing the fever as we know it will cause but it's when they're so unwell so sick i think it's the fear of doing nothing um sometimes the best thing to do is do nothing but it's often the hardest thing and it's not just us i, I mean we have staff that are scared with what's going on and it, it's you get the impression you got to do something um and so certainly we were aggressive with that. Um, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? And, and I, I, I think it's the after COVID when we do a, a look back at this and get larger um, data points, we'll have a better idea. Were we, what were we doing right and what were we doing wrong? Tommaso Abraham, did you guys see uh, much in the way of uh, bacteremia? So our policy uh, for antibiotics in our unit was from the beginning not to start antibiotic mm -hmm. until we have a positive culture. And uh, with this, uh, in the beginning, yes, we had a very high fever and still we didn't treat them until we had the positive cultures. Um, I would say that for those patients that uh, recovered fairly um, fastly, let's say seven days, 10 days, we didn't have much uh, bacteremia and VAP, um, let's say ventilator-associated pneumonia. Instead, for the prolonged weaning, yes, we've seen a lot, a lot with multi-resistant uh, bacteria and with bacteria, yes, MRSA and uh, Pseudomonas and uh, Stenotrophomonas, uh, yes. And uh, we kept on treating the new uh, positive culture and wait for that. But I would say is for, in our experience, for those uh, remaining prolonged uh, ventilation, for with prolonged ventilation. Yeah, our volumes were never uh, incredibly high, so I can't say I remember seeing a ton of uh, bacteremia. I mean, just because they were so prolonged with their ventilation course, we saw uh, some VAP uh, in uh, some of these patients longstanding. And, you know, especially because their x-rays were so abnormal, sometimes I would have had a lower threshold to bronch some of these people to get lower respiratory tract samples, but we really had been trying to avoid uh, doing bronchoscopies. Uh, in these patients, so maybe I would have had a sooner threshold to treat for suspect VAP, yeah, even without lower sampling. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, guys. Dube, you uh... just, I, I was gonna say uh, almost the same experience of uh, like I, I we did not have uh, Haley's experience at all, so I would say um, we did have 
a few VAPs, um, the, but, but not multi-resistant uh, unexpected things. Like we had a couple staffs, serratia that prolonged ventilation a little bit, but just like uh, Tomasa was saying, it was really the patients that were ventilated for 18, 19 days. We did have a few bacteremias. Most of those patients are patients that we transferred to the general for consideration for ECMO. So they were the really sick ones. Um, it didn't seem to be out of the ordinary for our ARDS uh, long stay patients, I would say. Um, so, so nothing new. And, the, and the, the, the shocking thing about all that is actually, we actually treated all our patients with ceftriaxone for five days on admission, which probably doesn't make a lot of sense. But, um, but that's what we chose to do in the beginning. Uh, just, you know, uh, in the same way that you treat a PCP patient with ceftriaxone because you can't exclude that other infection. But, you know, it's based on nothing, right? Like we said, it's based on we better just do this in case. And then we would universally stop them all at five days, but not, not at two or three days if there were no cultures, which, you know, you could argue that would probably be more sensical. But, but we, despite the septraxone for five days, we still didn't really see a lot of that bacteremia and that. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for that. Um, there's, a, there's some questions coming in, and I think, um, uh, I think it'll be, I think, um, yeah, we could get to them sort of. Um, so the risk factors, we talked about, you know, we saw a lot of diabetics or it, diabetics, hypertension, uh, obesity being some of those risk factors, comorbid, age. Because part of the media's, um, one of the, the, the fears that I feel like the media was, was implementing is like anybody could get this, anybody could get sick. Um, well, obviously it's true. There's going to be outliers in any disease uh, course, but maybe in terms of your experience, were you, was there anything, were you seeing cases that weren't really fitting the profile or was this kind of, were the patients that do, did poorly, was it predictable in your mind? I can start, I guess. Um, I would say that all of our patients that came in initially were the same. They were, they were almost, almost the same, seven to 10 days of symptoms. Um, they would start off at like 45%, 50%, 60%. And then you would know at around day five or six, whether this is going to be a bad one or not a bad one. And it would be, you know, up to 85, 90 PF ratios under a hundred. But at the beginning, there's certainly no way that we could have predicted it. And, and even looking back at the data, looking at age, comorbidities, anything, the frailty scale, all of the comorbidity indices, I, there's, there was no way that we could predict for sure. Uh, that, that's what I would say based on our 30-ish patients. I think similar was our experience. I, I do think that there was an underrepresentation of the fail, the frail and elderly in the ICUs associated with this, even though they are the most at risk. And I think it was because some of these goals of care discussions and the media portrayal, these decisions were made in the retirement homes and nursing homes, uh, or even on the hospital wards, not to go to critical care in the setting, which might have been different otherwise. So it did seem like the predominance was sort of the middle-aged, um, you know, hypertensive, slightly overweight. This was definitely the, the demographics that we saw most commonly in the ICU, but I don't think it's because uh, they were more prone to getting sicker than the elderly and comorbid, but rather I think that they were avoiding um, uh, burdening the hospitals and ICUs uh, in those uh, demographics. 
Yeah, I would build on that um, because the latter patients that we were getting were more elderly. And I think that's because people were more receptive to bringing them in um, and providing care um, because I did do have concerns on how restrictive it seemed in, initially on um, with the long-term care facilities and things. And, um, you know, I think if everyone was reasonable in goals and expectations, um, it would have, you know, been more receptive, uh, but we did see um, an increase in age as, as we progressed in it um, near the end. Um, I don't know if others shared that experience or not. So in uh, in Lombardy, if I can, in the beginning uh, there were uh, uh, I can say cities or towns or hospitals that had to decide uh, to put a limit of age uh, for intubation because there were not enough beds for everybody in the ICU, and we had a very early intubation strategy in Lombardy for sure. So I'm not saying that uh, elderly people were not intubated, but I'm saying that uh, from day to day, not, not, not as a general strategy, some of the elderly were not intubated and were put on uh, palliative, let's say, uh, care and uh, accompanied to die. In, indeed, this could be a, a bias in our mortality because uh, our a, the age, the population, the age of, the, of our population can be a little lower than other uh, centers or other regions in, in the world. I think. Hmm. Peter, you, are you sorry? Go ahead. Go ahead, Haley. I, no, I just wanted to say, in reference to the types of things that Graham was discussing before, I think this is part of what's incumbent upon us in, in conversations like this, just to remind everybody. Right, it's really hard to compare these types of things, as as Masa was just saying, around the world because the needs of the population really depend upon what's available for them, right? And, and if the hospital is overwhelmed or um, other things may be going on, there may be less opportunity for them to receive care that they might otherwise receive. And then I think obviously the sort of cultural norms for lack of a better word of what people expect at the end of their lives and it varies quite a bit um, around the world um, and even amongst countries like ours, which are otherwise much more similar than maybe other countries around the world might be, so. Agreed, great point. Um, Peter, you were on mute, did you have something to say or did you? I just want to make sure I'm not ignoring you. Well, you're terribly kind. You're certainly not ignoring me. Um, I think this is a fascinating discussion about uh, who comes to the ICU, both globally and, and, and age-wise. Um, there's going to be some very interesting studies. Obviously, there's going to be a million PhD theses that come out of COVID. But one that needs to be looked at is the one-year mortality of the elderly, not the... 28-day mortality of mm. the elderly. Um, I don't want to live in a society that universally says you're not coming anywhere near an ICU because you've, you know, because you're in a nursing home that's in lockdown or, or because you've hit a certain age. But I equally don't want to live in one that won't address those kind of issues. Uh, so, to me, one of the most interesting things that's going to come out of COVID is this idea of excess deaths or, or even non-COVID, COVID-related deaths. In other words, the MIs, the strokes, all of the other stuff 
you know, my understanding is the data that came out of Ebola, which is admittedly a very extreme example of a viral contagion, but three to four people were dying of non-Ebola, Ebola-related deaths rather than the Ebola itself. So I'm, I mean, I'm concerned on a social emotional level about what's happened to my hospital and how we deal with um, end of life issues for everybody now that we're in this sort of relative lockdown. That's bothered me greatly. But I'm also very interested to see data on strokes, data on MIs, data on other sepsis. You know, in the same way, economic disaster may cause just as many deaths as COVID does. Uh, there's a heck of a lot to discuss beyond even just ventilator strategies. Well, I, you know, you know, Peter, I think we have a lot of, in my opinion, clout to comment on these things. Cause we're, we're front lines. Like everyone's like, you know, you're getting all those on the media, all those like thank yous and whatever, and what have you. But like, you know, we're the ones that are at risk and, and you're, you're hearing this conversation from many intensivists or frontline staff saying like, are we thinking about the secondary consequences? And I, I think this is a legit concern. Like I, I was, uh, I did an interview recently talking about a, a patient that presented very late for an infection that was on paper treatable and just because of the fear of, of COVID. And, um, you know, I, we've had this conversation also with Dave and too, I think we might have slightly differing opinions on how this will look in the data, but we're certainly looking at this now uh, provincially as a project saying like, you come in with your COPD or your peripheral vascular disease during a pandemic, what are your outcomes? You know, and I, from my anecdotal and uh, bedside evaluation, it seems like things are, are worse uh, based on those fears. Um, so it's, 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 it's something that, like, I think we, we need to have this conversation for it to be addressed. Um, but yeah, actually, Dave, it might be a good point to bring, uh, time to bring up the point that uh, you often make. Well, and certainly, just I'll preface it before I make my statement that I've been advocating that we increase activity because I'm worried. I share the concerns Peter and others are alluding to of, of not doing anything is going to harm other patients with non-COVID disorders. And and Quad knows my biases. You know, I've not seen a, a marked spike in mortality. Like you'll remember the, the cases that were late presenting, but we're not seeing a ton of cases late presenting. And I'm actually, you know, there'll be a day of reckoning if, if we suddenly see the mortality of various regions during the shutdown and less um, elective activity and things as such, if the mortality actually has gone down, it does raise the question, are we causing harm at times? And, and so there's a happy balance. And, and unfortunately, I think we always practice in a world of polar extremes where it's always everyone gets a procedure, no one gets a procedure, everyone comes in the ICU, no one comes in the ICU, everyone gets hydroxychloroquine, no one gets it. I, I think we... Uh, we don't like to think anymore. We all want an algorithm, but uh, it'll be interesting when we do the deeper dive. And um, I, I, I think we'll be surprised by what we find that, that perhaps uh, we can do better in the future. Um, 
So I'm getting to more questions, unless anyone has uh, more to say about that. Um, in terms of, um, like, one of the things I, I, I'm fascinated about, is, alluding to your point, is if we could be more personalized with care, like knowing, you know, based on X, Y, Z risk factor, you're likely, or sorry, the fact that you are, if you have X, Y, Z risk factor, you're more risk of, 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 you know, succumbing to COVID. Like, I would like to see more research along those lines. And one of the questions that came up uh, was, you know, in terms of research dissemination, like we, we've actually seen some down, some negative impacts of, of, of things coming out too early. But there's also been some positive impacts by us being able to find out some of the experiences that people like uh, Tommaso had in, in, in Italy. And so just amongst us, is there any suggestions on the best way to, to do this? Because, and, and, and another point too, it is kind of sad, like in 2020, that more information or more data isn't readily available. Like imagine if you had, you know, I know there's privacy issues and all that, but like a readily available data throughout the world, patients going, uh, having COVID and you have like patient level data event strategies, all these things that could be uploaded into a database that we could all kind of interpret and, um, and uh, have access to. Um, you'd think that wouldn't be impossible in 2020, but regardless, any, any thoughts in terms of uh, the best way of getting knowledge out as it's something like this is happening? Well, I think you've exposed the fact that the traditional scientific method, as admirable as it is, is, is not necessarily fit for task when something sudden like this hits. Mm -hmm. So obviously we need randomized control trials and obviously we need to be patient and step back and not rush in and do rash things, as has been pointed out. But I think the role for big data to answer these sort of evolving questions has been exposed by this. I mean, Dave is absolutely right. We, we make the fallacious assumption that what we do must be beneficial and the lack of us must be detrimental. And it might absolutely be the other way around. I mean, I'm particularly fascinated by risk factors because a lot of the risk factors in my center were simply people who had status Americanus, you know, people that were <laughs> obese, that were obese um, hypertensive, et cetera, et cetera. And these aren't really traditionally called risk factors. The average BMI in my province, and I'm a, an exemplar of this, is about 28. Um, and, and, you know, so we talk risk factors versus is it just being a typical patient that is, that, that is sick enough to need uh, an ICU? That's your risk factor, and everything follows from that. And I, and I think big data is needed for this sort of thing as we fumble around in the dark. So I want to say something. I promise not to defend uh, Americans in that, uh, in response to that. Um, <laughs> um, well, stat status North Americanus then, because Canada's no different. Fair enough. Um, so I, I think, Claude, you raise a really interesting point. I, I think obviously this is for those of us who like to play with big data and think that we uh, do it intelligently, this really has seemed like a missed opportunity. Um, and I think we've, we've queried that many times, right, where, where we're wishing there was more, more readily accessible data. And I think on the whole, that is absolutely what we should aim for. Um, I think there's some potential risk in that. And to me, that 
unrelated to patient safety issues, which obviously exist, but which I think then plays into your second question, which is how do we handle these things coming out now? And I think that relates back to this issue from before of how is this data misinterpreted or, or interpreted and might that be wrong? And so I think part of the issue with having data available to everyone is policing how that data is analyzed. And I don't think that's the responsibility of the individual um, researcher necessarily, because he or she may think that they are very apt to do things correctly, whatever that might mean. But I do think that that puts an enormous onus upon peer review um, and the editorial staff of journals. And I think that if that's going to be how we continue to disseminate information, and, and I've struggled with this a lot, you know, handling some papers for one of the journals with which I work, I think that we can be more forceful early on in an epidemic with insisting upon limitations, real limitation description in the data that's being presented. And I think that that may get us around some of this. Obviously, there's going to be a news outlet that picks up that single number. But I do think if we ask of ourselves as researchers and of our researchers as reviewers and editors to really outline where the deficiencies are, not because they've done a bad job, but just because of the timing that the study is being done in, I think we would be doing ourselves a big service. And so if we're going to open up data to everybody, we need to be even more strict about that. That's my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a, a fantastic point. Um, the um, sorry, I thought Bram. I thought you looked like you were going to ask. I was I reading just, your mind. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I just didn't know um, timing wise if that was acceptable. But if I do have it, a minute or two, do, I was just do it, do it, do it. I was just going to say that uh, I think that there's the science part of it, but then um, the media and platform plays into this uh, so much as well. Is that you know inevitably you're going to have good science and bad science and rapid. I, I completely agree with Peter. Is that uh, well done, methodologically rigorous science does not lend itself to rapidity, but there is going to be stuff that is better, uh, more well done. And I think that you know taking every opportunity to give the proper scientists and experts the pulpit and uh, policing our media and journalists in terms of avoiding giving uh, false prophets uh, that pulpit. And, um, you know, and that's why I've tried as my best as Anand has and others, uh, Quad, Peter, and I don't know about the others, but, uh, you know, every opportunity you have where media engages you and says, do you want to write this article or this opportunity to go on TV? We should, we, we need to, uh, as you know, the quasi experts in this field take all those opportunities and, and dispel uh, misinformation and propagate uh, accurate information. It, it, some of it falls on us, it falls on the media, it falls on our leaders, our um, public health and our uh, Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump and, and all others to sort of fall back on science and push forward those that know what they're talking about and push down those that don't know what they're talking about. Fantastic point. And, it's, and um, especially in an era where, you know, it's easier for us to express ourselves, like with Twitter and Facebook, YouTube, what we're doing now, like it's, um, you know, I, I personally feel like I'm a bit on a mission. Like, uh, for, for, for me, it was more on the overall just doom and gloom of, of COVID. Um, and just ha adding that point that, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's crazy. People get sick, but most people don't get sick. And um, 
you know, and we're doing okay. Like, let's talk about some of the wins. Let's talk about the fact that, you know, our ICU might not have any COVID patients right now. Like, let's talk about some of the upside. Let's talk about maybe taking, giving some of the power back. Like, one of the narratives I would love to see is, you know, if there is a lull this summer, people get healthier, you know, like start getting that exercise, start getting that weight loss. Like, you know, maybe that should be a narrative that gets pushed. But Bram, I, 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 I honestly, I think it's been more important than ever to us to be champions of, of, of reliable, balanced information. Yeah, there's definitely room in our specialty for sort of professors of the public understanding of science, and we haven't pushed that enough. Um, you know, we focus so much on published opinion. There's also public opinion as well. And, and we're only just dipping our toes into that. Maybe, maybe that's one of the good things that'll come of COVID. And you know what? There are plenty of potentially good things that could come from COVID, including the fact that I've learned you don't have to be flying to a conference every second week. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the stuff we did was self-important, self-aggrandizing. Um, so any dialogue we can have, as, as Bram has pointed out, with the public, we should leap on that opportunity. And that's a new skill set we all have to learn, and, and we should we're, take pride in learning it. We're, we're in a bit of a unique situation that there's a highlight uh, uh, on our field right now. Like, uh, people who are not in our field are um, so knowledgeable suddenly, well, knowledgeable, relatively speaking, about ventilators, about critical care. Uh, you know, people are, you know, seeing the media appearances and what's happening in the ICU. And they're, I, I get all these comments like, wow, you guys are really doing great things. And I want to be like, that's what we've been doing for uh, many, many years. <laughs> it's just everyone's paying attention now. And, and we, we're at this unique opportunity where we can start to actually you know, socialize things like goals of care and what ICU care is like and what it's like after and what it's like during um, and not just, you know, maybe wait for that, that time when the patient's about to enter the ICU to educate the entire family about what that means. No, that's, that's beautifully put. Adversity is a terrible thing to waste. So if we lose this opportunity as a profession, it's our own downfall and our patients will suffer for it. 100%. This is, this is a push that the Solving Healthcare Res Resource Optimization Network, this is the, why we're pushing. This is why we're, you know, we've done, this is six webinars and I don't know, Dave, you've led about uh, four out of the six, um, just pumping out uh, content. And I would love, I mean, this is bias as a palliative care doc too, but if we had that more, um, that open dialogue about end of life care and, and all that. Like if that, even if that came out of this, like, wow, like that's a, that's a big, um, that's a big win. Quad, you're fighting the good fight with these podcasts and, and with helping with information. I think it's, uh, it's appreciated by many. Oh, appreciate that, buddy. Appreciate that. Um, I'm just, uh, just getting a second to peruse we got about, I'll say about five minutes and there's a, there's a couple um, quick hitter questions. Dave, I think this one's best for you. Did you have a sense of what percentage of COVID, I'll, I'll put it this way, um, co hospitalized COVID patients ended up in ICU locally? I think we're higher than the, in the ICU. I, I think it's yeah. higher than 5%. Um, that's commonly quoted, but uh 
I, I can't give you as accurate um, numbers for that, um, but I, I do believe we're higher than the, the 5%. And I think that was trying to keep more people quarantined out of, a, out of the hospital. So I would say higher. Okay. I can tell um, you that our hospital is between 30 and 40% of patients okay. that are admitted end up in the ICU at some point. Cool. Um, couple other quick hitters. Um, I think this one may be best for Peter. Um, the fact that you had low incidences of, of COVID, you mentioned that you think that maybe um, you might get hit harder hit in the fall. Do, is this affecting how you're going to, your, your IC will prepare or um, is it more of like, see how it, see how it plays out kind of approach? Well, it's, it's a great question. It's one of the reasons I'm so interested and or concerned about this excess deaths and non-COVID, COVID-related, because it could mean that we never actually step down the precautions. And there are aspects of this new normal uh, that are good for us. You know, the fact we live in the so-called digital age where we're constantly washing our digits is not a bad thing going forward. And increased use of masks is not a bad thing going forward. But this is why I fear that we may implement this as uh, you know, the way we do things now. In other words, one disease dominates all others. That's my concern with us not having had a peak, as bizarre as that comment sounds. Mm -hmm. You can flatten the curve, but I don't believe you can extinguish the curve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, so I, I do wonder if a lot of our approaches are, is it, is it truly flattening the curve nowadays or is it, is it like the falsity, whether you believe it or not, to try and, you know, rid the virus? Um, anyways, uh, that's, a, that's a bigger question, actually. So <laughs> I'm going to skip that. Um, are, are your ICU admissions driven by needing to coordinate patients? Oh, wait, sorry. Let me just double check. I got that right. Is the lack of private and negative pressure rooms on the floor affecting your ICU census? Like, are you bringing more patients down to the ICU because of the lack of negative pressure rooms? Never. Never. Okay. Because I think... No, and I would only point out that I don't think you need negative pressure rooms to safely yeah, that's manage a point. COVID patients. Like, doing the deeper dive in, in the PPE stuff, the more we if you actually look at the evidence that's out there, you know, it, we're afraid to accept evidence sometimes for some of this. So I don't think you, you need the negative pressure room. So I would agree that it's not driving ICU admissions. Perfect. Um, so any last thoughts or, or comments or things that um, any of our panelists feel like we need to address that hasn't been addressed. I would add that uh, everybody has an input here and I'm very, very grateful for the people who have taken the time out and listened in to, to us because at, at times we have absolutely no more expertise and probably less than some of the people listening in on the line. Uh, this has been a profound social experiment and, and, 
social upheaval. And a, a lot of people are suffering through this. Uh, you know, I, I don't mean to sound cute or trite, but honestly, my heroes through all of this have been the people who've driven the buses and made the sandwiches. Because you and I live in a world of uncertainty and we can deal with that. You and I have had PPEs, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I would I would just extend my best wishes to everybody who's on the call and equally uh, encourage them to reach out to non-traditional heroes. I'm, I'm very eager for the banging of pots for healthcare workers to end because in many ways we're actually very lucky. We have uh, reliable income. In fact, as Anam pointed out, we finally have the spotlight shone on us. Uh, people are saying lovely things about us instead of assuming that because it's summertime we're at the golf course. So, uh, I, I would just extend best wishes to to everybody out there, medical and non medical alike. That's a great shout out to uh, Peter, and I'll even um, reinforce some of the allied health too. Like uh, the, you're hearing more about the personal support workers that have succumbed to COVID, and you know that's it could be. I mean, we can't do our jobs without them. The respiratory therapists that are right there. Um, and really at at uh, at high risk. So I, I I'm glad you uh, brought that up, and uh, just want to extend that to the rest of our team there. Allied Health, Physio too, uh, they could be forgotten. Anyway, guys, um, cleaning staff, of course, yeah, cleaning staff. Thanks for that, Dave. That's uh, I mean, what an intimidating process. Um, you want to say, you look like you're going to say something. Well, no, I, I was going to say we go in with all the stuff, all the knowledge, and then we make a mess and then we walk out of there. And I think a lot of the COVID that's shared isn't so much airborne as everyone's concerned. It's, it's picking it up off of um, equipment and things like that. And we make a mess of the rooms and it's the cleaning staff that actually go in with no one's probably sat down and spent time educating them on what is the most important thing. And so I, you know, we could do shout outs to a lot of people, but I think uh, they're the forgotten people in all of this. Amen, brother. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, panelists. Thank you so much for this. Um, I'm going to put you on a job though. I want, this is going to be ready uh, this time tomorrow for podcast and YouTube. Circulate it to your academic staff, circulate it to your uh, everybody and their mother, because once again, I want us to make sure, do our part to make sure people are informed in terms of decisions when coming to uh, admitting our, our ICU COVID patients. And, but once again, thank you so much for doing this. This was excellent. This was excellent. Thanks for organizing. Thanks for organizing. Pleasure. Thank you. Great organization.